Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to Anti-Bullying 101. This podcast is designed to create awareness about the bullying epidemic and provide teachers, administrators, parents, and even students information about the dangers of bullying and why we have to take a comprehensive approach when dealing with the problem. My name is Jim Burns. I'm your host. I'm a retired high school administrator with over 40 years of experience in education. Currently, I'm a college instructor, and I've designed the Bullyproof Classroom, a graduate course that provides my students with permanent help, not temporary relief, as they battle the bullying epidemic. Enjoyed the podcast, everybody. Well, hi again, everybody, and welcome back to Anti-Bullying 101. My name is Jim Burns, and we're here to discuss anything that's related to bullying, anything that's related to violence, uh, problems in a community, problems in schools, problems in the family, post-traumatic stress disorder, any number of topics. And today... We have a very interesting show because about a month ago, I interviewed uh, a young gal named Jen Dalton who wrote a book called Butterflies and Bullies. And it was a great show and a great interview, but what I discovered was the enormous insight that Jen had when it came down to bullying, to um post-traumatic stress and to that end how much information she actually had related to confidence and having the ability to be more confident and what it takes to be confident and what confidence looks like and, and what happens when we lose our confidence and what are, who are some of the people that have caused us to lose it and Jen and I talked and we made a decision that she was going to come on not as a guest but more as a co-host if you will uh, and we recorded a show a, a few days ago and through my own technological faux pas I forgot to turn on the record button because we were doing this via Zoom and I ended up missing about a minute and a half of the show which was basically some niceties that were exchanged and we had 
talked about how nice it was to be able to do this show together. So we lost a little bit in the very beginning. However, I was able to edit out all of the the trauma technology, the technology trauma, if you will, and I have the interview, and I think it was well done. I do not the interview, the show. I didn't interview Jen, and uh, I want to play this for you uh, right now. You're going to enjoy it. Number one. If you can live with my cell phone buzzing for uh, about 10 seconds and forgive me for it and look beyond it, I think that you're going to find the, con- the content that's provided in this show to be extraordinary. So here it is. This is Jen Dalton and I co-hosting Anti-Bullying 101, uh, which we did, uh, I think it was two days ago. So enjoy the podcast, everybody. It's Jim Burns with Jen Dalton. We're here on Anti-Bullying 101. We're talking about confidence and mostly confidence with girls at this point. Um, And I find it, you know, rather interesting that girls have um, that, like that conversation that you you just had where you said that the... um, uh, they have trouble accepting com- uh, a compliment. Somebody says something nice to them and they go, oh, wait a minute, you know, no big deal. Oh, this old thing or whatever the case may be. And my father actually taught me how to accept a compliment when I was a kid um, by just saying thanks very much for the, com- you know, for the, the, the compliment. But it's, my point was it, it starts at such a young age and I'm 67. So, you know, I'm, I've been around and, but I still have recurring thoughts of when I was a kid and things that were said to me that reduced my confidence And I don't think people realize that. As an example, and I'm going to share this story. I came home from school in the first grade with a poor spelling test. And my mother went ballistic. First grade kid, you know, what are you spelling in the first grade? You know, some of the cat or dog or whatever you're spelling. And I got I did I did poorly on the spelling test. Well, I made it a point I was going to please my mother. And I was going to do well on the next test. The next text comes up, I get 100. I take that little slip of paper that you had with the spelling words on it. And I, and I go running home to show my mother I trip and rip my pants. I go through the door. The spelling test meant nothing at that point, the 100, because you tore your pants. And now you got reamed down for ripping your pants because you were so excited to get home to show the test to your mother. You know, so it was kind of like, no, no matter what I do, what can what can I do to please my parents? What is it? You know, I did pass the test. I know I ripped my pants, but can you like overlook the pants because I pay, I passed the test? That's what you wanted originally, wasn't it? 
Well, I think you're bringing up an interesting point because you're reminding me of something that my dad said. Um, he passed away three years ago and my sister um, did one of those story core interviews with him where, you, you know, she asked him a bunch of questions and it's like living on and uh, the story core library, which is really a sweet thing to have. Um, and one of the things he said was, he's like, you know, I lived my life not trying to please other people, but to please myself. He's like, I wasn't trying to become somebody or be somebody. I already was somebody. And that really sticks with me. It kind of speaks to what you're saying, which is that, you know, we, we have, I feel like it's like, it's not about pleasing your parents. Although, even though that's how we're raised, right. Got to make mom and dad happy. So they don't get mad at us. Got to make our friends happy. So they can like us. Whereas just giving ourselves our own permission to be good for us, you know, that we're the judge of what is, you know, what's good out there in the world or that, you know what I'm saying? Like that it has to start within. And I think that, you know, we're trained, we live in this like self-deprecating culture. Oh, you know, God forbid you say, you know, yeah, thanks. I do feel like I look good today, or I'm really proud of myself that I, I worked hard to get that a, you know, I really studied for it. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I didn't grow up that way. I, I you know, I grew up where, you know, you just kind of had to hide a little bit because to be big and confident and um, self-assured was not a cultural norm. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not sure if that's changed much. You know, I know you, you mentioned how old you are. I'm 51. And, um, you know, I grew up in a certain environment, even though I was in the gifted program and, um, you know, was surrounded by, you know, other kids that were kind of competitive with grades and stuff. You'd think that there'd be this culture of like, oh, good for you, you know, but we don't, it's that team spirit. It's like, we are in such a, like a me environment as opposed to like a we environment, which, you know, I think we're seeing really clearly in our culture right now that we're, we're not focused on um, the collective we're focused on ourselves, but we're not focused on ourselves in a positive way. We're focused on ourselves in a judgmental way that has us comparing and, um, you know, looking at, you know, how are we measuring up to what, you know, someone else is doing, especially with like the um, social media culture, like, oh, they have this, I don't have that. You know, there's just a lot out there. And that's why I say it's really important to give yourself permission to just to succeed. And to really celebrate those moments when you are succeeding and, you know, put a little notch on the, on the wall. Like I did it, you know, this is a good thing and keep trying and keep picking yourself up back up and, um, you know, telling yourself good things. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if, um, the, the well, I, I I did have I did have a question, but I, I'm really like getting. It's, it's not that we are more um, we. I think we're focused on me for the wrong reasons. In other words, fo- focusing on me meaning like I am. Um, like I'm trying to think, like, and maybe you could answer this question. When did you finally decide that you were grown up? You yeah. know, when, see, because I think with the lack of confidence, there's so many people that, that get, you, they, they finally say, well, um, I'm not grown up yet. And, and I think you only have to get around a, 
a Thanksgiving table as the youngest member of the family, and I mean the extended family, and you're like 28, and everybody around you was like 42, because my sisters were older than me, and they had all older husbands and older friends, and, and I was still at 28. I still didn't feel grown up. I still didn't feel like I fit in. I didn't have the confidence to participate in those conversations at the table with the older folks, you know, and, and carry on. And I, I, I still try, I'm still trying to put a benchmark in my head to when I said, you're all grown up. You know, you, you mean something. Your words mean something. People are going to listen to you rather than you having to sit and listen to everybody else. And and then when you go to talk, they cut you off because they don't think what you have to say is meaningful. And I think that's something we have to remember with our youngest children. Like, I have to remember that with my youngest daughter, Zoe. I have to. Because she doesn't want to get cut off. She wants to be heard. She likes to talk. And it's good stuff. Well, that's such a great thing to notice about yourself, like that you want to give your daughter space to be herself. And I think that that's, you know, it's really like, there's so much um, confidence building in knowing that you've been heard. Oh, they heard what I had to say. They paused, they listened, they didn't talk over me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and again, you know, we live in this culture where not all of us, but, you know, in big family situations, especially it's like, everyone's just talking, everyone wants to, you know, get their point across. And I had those situations too. We, we would sit around at the holidays and play Rook and, I think I was the only, um, I was, I, I was of the oldest of the kids of the whole line. And so I did sit at the grown up table and I did engage in the conversations, but I also sat back and listened a lot. And I, you know, I don't think that I was necessarily heard, but I participated in some ways. And I think it did give me confidence to, uh, you know, to sit at the big, big uh, people's table and play their card game and, and be amongst their conversation. Um, you know, and I know for me too, like I would often, when I went to friends' houses, when I was growing up, sometimes I just sit and like talk to their mom mm -hmm. and not hang out with my friend as much. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing. So that is, it is, it's like that being heard space. Someone's listening to me. They think what I'm saying has some value. And I, and I, and especially in the, in the bullying conversation space, when, to encourage our children to come to us and say something's happening and I don't feel good about it. And to really hear them. Mm -hmm. Cause I think that that's one of the first steps to healing is yeah. To, to, to really know and to feel like, okay, someone heard what I had to say mm -hmm. and they didn't think that I was lying or um, over, you know, over um, exaggerating the situation or, you know, dismissing my personal experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. They, they talk a lot about empathy in this whole area of bullying, but they don't talk a lot about empathic listening. And I think with our kids and uh, especially especially with girls, I, I, I honestly believe I don't mean to be leave the guys out. Heck, I'm a guy. Uh, I think they need it as well. Uh, and I think our boys today need, you know, good. I think everyone needs it, but I think we need good uh, male role models to help uh, different uh, people, you know, and help uh, our own children 
you know, and so on. I'm talking about in schools as you're working with um, as you're working with other kids. But uh, the idea that um, uh, we have to, when we listen, we have to give them the idea. They have whether we fake it or not. I, I really mean that because half of the time, you know, when we're, you know, when we're listening, we're doing other things. You know, we're 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 cooking, we're working on something, and it's what we're saying is what I'm doing here is more important than what you're saying to me. And that's what that's the communication that we don't want to have. And I've often said to my own daughters, I said, the worst conversations that I could have with you are the ones that I think we've had. Yeah, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I'll have a conversation with someone in my family specifically, and I'll think that I'd already said something because I was having the conversation with myself in my head and not saying it out loud. Um, but I think that what you're bringing up is, is that presence is so important. And, and we, you know, we're very distracted by all the media in the world and, you know, everything that's outside, but to, to, to really make time to just, you know, make space to listen to ourselves, make space to be quiet and make space to be, you know, really present with one another when we're having conversations. That's why, you know, a lot of folks, you know, need training on, you know, how to look someone in the, in the eye. And I remember, you know, when I was in my early twenties, I was a terrible listener. I was so traumatized by, um, you know, my bullying, bullied experience that it was really hard for me to be in relationship with other people. And that's something that I had to learn how to do. And I remember having a friend who said to me, oh, I don't think you're listening to me. And I'm like, oh, maybe I wasn't like, how would you know if I was listening to you? And he said, well, it'd be nice if you said something like, uh-huh. Oh yeah. I know that. Uh-huh. Yeah. That makes sense. Or just you know, be in the conversation, but I didn't even know how to do that. So it, it's, you know, I really had to learn how to, um, yeah, how to flow in conversation. And you were mentioning, how do you know when you're a grown up? Like, you know, it takes time. Obviously, we develop our frontal lobe. We start to have that executive reasoning. We learn how to individuate as humans. And then we have to figure out how we integrate all of that in relationship with other people and with ourselves. And, you know, I, I don't know when we say we're grown ups. I'm like, sometimes I still feel like, especially in relationship with others, that I'm very young. Um, cause I still have so much more to learn. Well, we all do. Yeah. Uh, and the, the, the other uh, piece to that is, um, as an example, we send kids off to college every year to live in college. Sometimes we send them thousands of miles away and parents wring their hands when they send their kids off to college. Because somewhere deep down in them, in their soul, they knew that they didn't instill enough confidence and independence and responsibility into that, into their son or their daughter for them to survive on their own. And they're in line. So then they start with phone calls and how are you doing? Is it okay? And you're checking in. Even when kids get married, this is where you have the, 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 the parents, and I'll use the word, my parents have been dead forever, you know, but I'll, the meddling parents, they come, they calling up, questioning. 
you know, and I firmly believe that it's their way of communicating. I don't think you could do it on your own. You still need me. And I still want you to know that, that you know, that I'm going to have to uh, watch over you a little bit because I don't have the confidence myself that I did a good job in raising you. So now you don't have any confidence either. I don't have the confidence. Now you don't have confidence. And that's the part that really is troubling to me. You know, if you you screwed, look, you may have screwed up a little bit, but let me screw up on my own now and figure it out because that's where I'll develop the confidence from being a good problem solver. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I grew up in a house where my parents were like, the rule is there are no rules. And they really gave us space to totally screw up and like figure out how to pick ourselves up off the floor. But, you know, it would have been nice to have some, uh, you know, a container for some, you know, uh, guardrails or something, but you know, I, I had to learn a lot of that on my own. And, you know, I definitely, I got kind of kicked out of the nest, you know, like here, go figure it out. We don't have time to, to coddle you. So I didn't have that experience that you're explaining. I, I really had to, you know, be on my own, but I have a lot of friends who are in the position that you're talking about right now, who are having a hard time, you know, letting their kids fly. And I, you know, I think that, yeah, it just, there, it's, the, you know, it's a generational thing that you're speaking of, you know, that we just don't, we're, we're, we're perpetuating this culture of not enoughness, right? Mm-hmm. We're scared that we're not enough. We're scared they're not enough. We're scared, you know, that they're going to fail, like, and also not looking at failure as an opportunity for success, right? Or as an opportunity mm-hmm. to reframe the mistakes that we make into lessons, Mm-hmm. And that's not something that we're taught either necessarily. So um, I think there's a lot of opportunity for growth and to, um, you know, begin creating a culture where it's okay to shine and it's okay to stumble. And it's just like kind of having a little bit more space for our humanity as individuals so mm-hmm. that we can have a little bit more of that empathy. And because um, I think it comes from having your own experiences you can't be empathetic towards someone if you don't really understand what it feels like to be in pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of parents, especially the ones that I know are, are really afraid to let their kids hurt. And, mm. I, you know, I come from the perspective of like, I've had a lot of hurt and it's really um, helped me build a lot of self-confidence and a mm-hmm. lot of resiliency as a result of that. And it's through that resiliency and confidence that I feel like I can be a person walking in the world with a little less fear and a little bit more, um, you know, what I call like self-efficacy, this idea that like I can um, be successful with certain skills and certain, um, you know, life skills that can can keep me, you know, safe, I guess, or, you know, keep me, help me, you know, ride the road to, to successes that I'm defining, that I'm not having someone else define for me so that Mm -hmm. I can feel satisfied with the life that I'm creating for myself. Mm -hmm. But that came from so much pain. And I I feel like we have to let kids hurt a little bit, you know, and be a voice, you know, be someone who listens to them like, oh, this didn't work. And I feel, you know, sad about it or whatever it is, right. I'm mad at myself or, it's okay. Express those things. It's okay. You don't have to fix it or change it. 
just mm-hmm. reframe it into, well, what have we, what, what went well? What did I learn from this? And then start integrating our experiences into the future. That's right. Yeah, I, I agree with you. What did I learn from it? You know, and how am I going to take it moving forward? You know, in terms of my other experiences and how can I integrate it in with other experiences and, and take that and, and move forward? You know, you, you make a good point. And I, I wanted to just share this quick illustration. I was working as a principal of a school for clinically disturbed kids. And I mean, the kids were depressed, suicidal. Like they were like the kids that some of the kids that are in school today who are having difficulty, but they were like, wait, they were like much, much more pathological, much more difficulty. And routinely we would, I would have the school of 60 kids. Routinely I would have uh, four or five kids in the hospital at a time because they, of their suicide ideation, they had to hospitalize them. And I had a team of therapists that worked there at the school. And, um, and I used to go over and visit them when they were hospitalized. I'd go over and see them at the hospital because we were worked in conjunction with a hospital. <laughs> and I met the psychiatrist who worked with my kids. And I said to the psychiatrist, I said, what is their typical day like? You're in a hospital, right? He said, they get up, they have breakfast. I said, and they're on a they're on a medication regime. He said, they are medicated. Sometimes we have therapy. Sometimes they have family therapy if, if the families can take it. If we, in other words, sometimes the families are part of the problem. Um, they do their schoolwork. They take a nap. You know, they do very little. Basically, they do like nothing. So I said to him, what would happen if you gave these kids a little job to do each day? They're going to be here for 28 days. Give them a little something to do. In other words, this is your job. I'm not butting in. I'm not going to tell you how to do it. But this is a little job. And you know what? Let's Because what I'm trying to build is something that's called Capable, connected, contributing. I want the kid to feel capable, you know, at something. And there was a marked difference in those kids when they felt capable. This is why I've spoken out, not against, but the abuse of 504 plans in school. Because a 504 plan basically a kid could do nothing based on the 504 plan. In other words, he can come in late, go home early. He doesn't need as many books. He can, because of the fact that he's got some, uh, some condition that we're dealing with, we reduce responsibility. And I think we should increase responsibility to make them form or feel more capable because that's where the problem is coming from. They don't feel confident in their own abilities my thoughts. No, I, you know, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, we all need to feel that we're contributing something. That's what makes us feel, you know, like we have a place in the world. Right. 
mm-hmm. when we are contributing and then we get acknowledgement for that contribution, whether it's even just like my job was to sweep the floor and then I saw that the floor was swept and it looked good and it made me feel good. Oh, I did that. I, you know, right. that makes me feel good. Good. That's like a start. And I, you know, we just, you know, like, I can't say enough. I just feel like we spend so much time, you know, not teaching kids to, you know, that's why it's, you know, having chores is really important, you know, and to say, you know, even starting chores at a really young age and saying, we'll just do this one little thing, you know, put away your toys, whatever Mm -hmm. it is. Great. You did that. Good for you. Thank you so much. That was really, really helped. You know, and then as they get older, you build in more and more chores. Like, you know, my husband, for example, he, um, you know, his, his kids come from a divorced family. So they would be with us for a certain amount of time and then go back to their moms and they'd be like, well, before you leave, you need to clean everything. You have to wash, you know, the floors in the bathroom. You need to clean the sinks, clean the shower, like put, you know, clean your rooms. Like everything needs to be the way it looked when you came in. And then you can leave, you know, and I really feel like it's given them the sense that like, this is what we do. This is how we do it. Right. And, you know, they're having their own, you know, struggles with, you know, becoming adults. They're in their twenties trying to figure things out. But I think that that's really instilled in them some confidence just, you know, in like, well, what's your role in this house? Mm-hmm. Right. Among, you know, in of course there's other roles that they play, but like, here's something we always do. So just creating those, you know, those barriers or those not barriers, that's not the word I'm looking for. It's the, um, the parameters within which we function. And this is your contribution to that. Thank you so much. You know, move on. And, and right. I think no matter, you know, what the, um, the ability of the person is, they need to have that. You know, for example, I also, you know, do a lot of work with this orphanage in Haiti and we have a girl, her name is Mamem, who is severely learning disabled. And, you know, but she has a role in the house where it's, you know, she cleans. And it's like every day, you know, she may not be going to school like everyone else is, but she's also not just sitting around doing nothing. You know, she's a part of the, of the, the you know, the household and the way it functions. And I think that that really helps her because it gives her these parameters within which to be in this, this, this um, community of people who are, have different learning abilities and different ways of living life. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I fully agree yeah. with you. I think we just, we, we give, give kids too much permission to, to run wild, which, you know, it's interesting too, to think about how childhood wasn't even a thing until like the seventies or something, right? Like Mm -hmm. this idea of letting kids be kids, which I think is really important too, but within, you know, some set of, of parameters, right? Like you can go run wild and be a kid, but then come in and be a part of something. Don't just sit on your phone and, um, you know, be, completely Mm -hmm. bombarded by, you know, TikTok or whatever it is. It's like, maybe there's some time for that TikTok. And then we come and we hang out together as a family, or we have dinner together, or we cook together. Mm -hmm. And of course that requires the parents to be present to the way that they're parenting, right. Or the teachers to be willing to, um, you know, let kids have their own self-expression within some parameters of what the classroom situation is. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, it's a difficult balance and it requires a lot of, a lot of commitment on the part of, you know, the grown up, so to speak. You know, I had put together 
I put together a book uh, and it was called The Real Three R's in Education. It had nothing to do with resiliency. It was respect, responsibility, and relationships. And in that book, I did some research on um, uh, Dr. Spock. Uh huh. Now, Dr. Spock was an um, uh, opportunist because he knew that the, the, the guys that came home from the service were going to be um, interested in starting families and interested in meeting their future wives and getting into relationships and starting a, a, a kind of like a life of their own. Um, many of them were young guys, unlike my father, who already had kids. My father was drafted at 34, and he and he had already had a daughter when he left to go to the service. And um, so therein lies the beginning of the baby boomers, which was 1946 to 1960. Because those were the those are the chits, mate. Those are the children of the World War II veterans that came home from the service. We were the baby boomers. And in Spock's first book, he talked about giving your children respect and then, which I am not opposed to, and choice. Choice. You have to give kids choice. But see, when people hear choice, they they don't take into consideration the fact that when kids are little, they have to be obedient before they get what they want. So before you get what you want, okay, you have to do what I'm asking you to do. So they started to give away the store. The children, in other words, the, the question became to a three-year-old, well, what do you want to do? Right. And that became a problem. Now, Spock wrote a second book. And I wrote about this, too. He wrote a second book. And in the second book, he changed those two things because in the news before he died, he said, because I feared I may have screwed up five generations. Spock, this is the was the father of like, you know, uh, parenthood or whatever you want to call it, the baby and child rearing. So I look at it from a standpoint of there has to be a balance. I have to give you rules and regulations. But I have to also have compassion and understanding. I have to have both. And if I have both and you understand that I have your best interest at heart, you're going to be confident because you have faith in my I have a, a family where you, we, we, it's almost like you have to have a, a mantra. This is the Burns family. This is what we do. This is how we are. And you feel part of a tribe. Yeah. You, feel, you feel connected, you know, to your cousins and to other people. And that builds confidence. That really makes kids feel good about themselves and makes kids feel good about others. And, you know, lets them reach out and become more service oriented. And they see things more than just what's here, but they look and see things like and having Zoe. My my youngest daughter, who is African-American, adopted from Ethiopia, has had made me come up with such a more global look at things, you know, in terms of, you know, they got to walk in Ethiopia. You know, they have to walk like 
six miles a day to get water to irrigate the rice paddies. Meanwhile, she's here and she just goes over to the refrigerator and gets cold water, you know, and so on. And so one of the things that we did with her is we were part of a program where we, we buy, this is incredible, we buy a family, a goat. Heifer International. It's, I think that's it. Yeah, yeah, that's a great program. My, we do that as a family too. My mom um, supports a community with cows and goats and things. It's awesome. But they have to see it. Yeah. They have to see that you're doing it. And, and then it gives them more of an outlook toward outreach, outreach toward other people. Yeah. You know, and, and I think it's good that she sees us doing it for, because she's going to go back to Ethiopia eventually. She's right. going to want to. You know? Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I think about all the kids who don't have what you're providing, right? And, you know, I grew up in a very traumatic house and lots of stuff going on. All I wanted was to get out of there. I didn't feel like I was a part of something necessarily, not something I really wanted to be a part of. And I had to learn a lot of stuff for myself. And that's why I feel like, you know, reading is really incredible, like finding um, inspiration. Like if you don't have the role models, like your daughter has in her life, figuring out who they are for for you and finding them, whether it's a teacher or a parent of a friend or, you know, a peer or, you know, some fictional character in a book or, you know, a philosopher that you connect with or whatever, but finding something that can give you that model that you want to follow. Right. You know, and so that you have, a, you know, one of the ways that I feel like it's really important to build self-confidence is to have a vision for yourself, which is really hard to do sometimes, especially when, you know, we live in a culture where, you know, we're just go, 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 you know, where's this time to stop and really think about like, who am I becoming? Who do I want to become? You know, you know, and as we get older, of course, we probably we think about that in different ways, like in terms of leaving a legacy or, you know, what have you. But when you're young, it's not, you know, you're living in the now and it's really hard to think about, you know, who do I want to be? But when we have a family unit or some kind of, you know, group that we can be a part of that shows us the way then it can do what you're saying, which is help build that confidence. And, you know, I know at least for myself, I don't think I really had that until I was in my thirties, maybe because mm-hmm. I was starting to build a network of friends where I, I felt inspired by them to become something bigger than I thought I could be. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, not to diss on my family and they're there. I got what I needed from that relationship and that, and I still do, but, um, you know, my dad would say all the time, Oh, well, we're the Daltons. This is what the Daltons do. And right. I get what he means kind of from a ancestral generational perspective, mm-hmm. but I don't know if I necessarily felt connected to it the way that he did. And I think that, um, that in a lot of ways, there's a lot of people talking right now in the kind of like the collective about uh, ancestral healing and how we're in a place right now where we're healing generations of trauma, generations of, um, you know, ways of doing things that may not have been super helpful. Like for example, you know, my dad was raised by a preacher and, you know, they were very like corporal punishment. So I grew up with the legacy of his, you know, corporal punishment, um, experience, Maybe it was a little less than what he experienced, but I still had that. And then I was like, well, I'm, I think that that's like not the way to, you know, punish your kids. Right. So I was never going to do that, but it's, 
it, it takes time to unlearn the things that we've been taught that we're teaching our kids. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think recognizing that and, and taking time, like as adults who are parenting to think, what is it that I have learned from my ancestors and the generations that came before them about how to be in the world? And what do I want to take from that? And what do I want to say, you know, thank you, but no, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's something that we have to, uh, I guess, choose. It's kind of like we have to take what we need and leave the rest. Totally. And there's that choice. Like when we get to choose, we get to say, well, I chose that. Mm-hmm. And then we can take responsibility for it because that was our choice. Right. And the responsibility doesn't need to be, you know, if something goes wrong because of that choice, that responsibility doesn't mean that we have to blame or shame ourselves or anyone else. It was just a choice that was made. And now we can choose something else. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and I think too, it's like, we live in this culture of like blaming and shaming and, you know, having, you know, it's bad and wrong. If you make mistakes, et cetera, like, okay, let's, you know, begin to learn from you know, the ways in which we move through the world as humans and it's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I, I do. I, I think vicariously I could probably, um, well, I, I'd like to, I'd like my, see, I, I could live my life through my kids. I mean, and, you know, see, but I have to be careful because I don't want to clone them. I don't want them to be like me. That's for sure. I mean, in, in their own way, I want them to take what's good and leave the rest as well. Remember, they have a mother as well that they draw from, you know, in terms of her knowledge base and her personality, you know, and so on. But I, I think we have to just be aware of who we are. I think the word when you said. Um, like this is and I love that word ancestral healing. I really do. I think it's terrific. But when you, you talked about um, what direction are you going, and it, it was kind of like if, when you lose your confidence, you lose your purpose. Yeah, you lose you know, your way for sure. You know, you're not sure what direction you want to go. You're not sure what you're not sure who you want to become. Right. But and what you're making me think about is how uncomfortable we are in the not knowing. Right. Because we, we have such a rational way of looking at the world it's not necessarily very like heart centered, compassion centered. Right. Right. So it's either it's black or white, or we're, we're really just putting people in boxes. Whereas if we can just be okay with, with the not knowing, which is also known as like the liminal space, it's the space in between. And just like trust that that's like a place where we're growing, we're exploring. We may not have any answers yet, but we're looking for, you know, maybe a piece of information that resonates with us. Like, okay, oh, that works. That would make me feel good. That made me feel good. And then we'll end up on the other side. It's that, you know, the gardening metaphor of like, well, we've planted a seed. We know, you know, we're becoming something. We don't know necessarily what's going to pop out of the ground, but there's a lot of work that happens beneath the surface. Right. And we just, as a culture, I feel like I have to spend more time appreciating all of that stuff that that gooey, mucky messiness that is happening under the ground that's so fertile and full of life that we don't we don't spend a lot of time thinking about. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I know that it's a huge part of the creative process. We, I call it going into the swamp. Like you just go and you get all dirty and it's uncomfortable and it's dark and you don't know 
what's happening, but eventually something arises that's, that was never there before that you begin to recognize as something that like you can say has shape or it has meaning, or it has, you know, it's something that you're, you can identify with and then you can claim it. Mm-hmm. But if you, if you're just getting, you know, upset and frustrated because you don't know, well, then that's, that's a place where you're going to get stuck. So, mm-hmm. you know, I really try to encourage people that I work with, like, just be okay with that. Like, let it be, it's you're, you'll figure it out eventually, but mm-hmm. it has to come from some deep place within where there's a recognition, a recognition that happens and you say, oh, oh, right. Yeah. That's, that's what I want. And I, and I can go after it and I can achieve it, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm becoming the person who wants that thing and that's okay. And I give myself permission to be confident enough to achieve it. Mm-hmm. So that's been my experience at least. And, you know, yeah. And, and you know, when you said you got to get down and dirty and get into the mud and everything else it, 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 it with the seed, it, it almost reminded me of, of course, from a, a Christian standpoint, the death, burial and resurrection. Totally. The and Lord, it's an ongoing cycle that we're living throughout yeah. our lives. Right. It's a yeah. metaphor. Yeah, it is. It really is. And it, it can, ha- and it happens, you know, so many times in our lives. Right. And it's the, our job is not to make it wrong or bad. It's our job is to notice where we are in that, you know, birth, resurrection, death cycle mm-hmm. with all different kinds of things. And it can be happening simultaneous for simultaneously for different aspects of our being or things that we're creating in the world or ways that we're, you know, are moving through the world in different, you know, different aspects, right. Or different parts of ourselves could be undergoing different parts of that process at the same time. It's a lot to hold. So, but we're not trained in how to do that. So now the, the idea is a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine once said to me, he said, um, you have got to be ready for something that's called the death of a vision. He said, because when you let, when you want to accomplish something and you hit roadblocks or you have problems or you have difficulties and so on, if you can, in your mind, allow the vision to die, somewhere along the way, you're going to find out that you weren't quite as prepared to do what you wanted to do. And supernaturally, the vision rises up again, and then you can accomplish what you want. Totally. And I found found that so cool. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And I think that, again, it's in general, we have this fear-based society. And so we're grasping, you know, and it's, you know, there's kind of like that Buddhist philosophy of like no attachment, right? like just allowing things to go and to come and to, you know, maybe it's more Zen where it's like being the reed in the river, just letting things, you know, um, flow around you. Right. It's, we have, we have to like put ourselves into a space where we're not afraid of letting it go. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's that fear that keeps us like, you know, I, I personally had like this creative project I was working on and it was in my mind for like 10 years. And I just let it go this year. I was like, I just have to, I'm not working on it. Like, why am I beating myself up about the fact that like, I haven't done anything with this idea. 
you know, I just have to like, let it die. And I have to like, you know, they call it in writing, they call it killing your darlings. Like, you know, you have all these awesome ideas and you want them all to be brilliant and thriving, but they're not all going to be brilliant and thrive. Right. My, um, the creative coach I was telling you about Liz Kimball, she has another metaphor for it, which is, she's like, I have all these like visions and ideas, but you can't realize them all. So she's like, I've imagined there's this island and it's the island where all the ideas go and they all live on the island and they're all frolicking and, and growing and doing their own thing without me. And if for some reason they want to come off the island and we'll be ready for each other, then that time will come. But I am going to let them frolic on this island for a while without me. And I was like, oh, I like that metaphor. That helps a lot because it's, it's, it is, it's this metaphor for what's happening in our lives in just so many different ways that, um, it's the grasping and the wanting something to be a certain way. And the thinking that we have control that is, you know, it kind of keeps us, um, from, you know, sort of embracing what is right. Right. And I think when we allow that, we don't necessarily get so, um, down. In other words, we could get down when things don't work the way we want them to, but if we can, in our mind say, it's not working the way I want it to right now, but I'm going to practice what I call active waiting. I'll just do what I have to do, you know, and we'll see where it all goes. And the flow is a little bit easier and you can manage things a little bit better and you don't lose the confidence. You don't, you don't lose your confidence. You still feel like you got your mojo going in there because you're going to work on something else, but you, you have the feeling that this will come to fruition at some point, but not, it's just not going to happen. Not with my own physical power. It has to almost has to come supernaturally. Yeah, I agree with that too. And I think that I always say my mantra around that is what's the next best step that Mm -hmm. I can take you know, and maybe there isn't a step that I can take. So maybe it's just waiting Mm -hmm. or just letting it, you know, put it on pause for a while, even if it's something about my own like self-confidence around, you know, loving myself more or like, oh, I'm just, I'm not cracking that nut. Right. Like there's something missing that's keeping me from feeling fully self-expressed or whatever. Like I'm saying, even if it's something that's not tangible, it's just something more internal. Mm -hmm. Have to be willing to just say, well, it's, you know, there's too much resistance around it right now. Oh, that was th- something that I got, I was taught when I was younger was that which you resist persists. Mm-hmm. But like if you're resisting it happening, well, that feeling of uncomfortableness is going to persist inside of you. And so sometimes you just have to let it go so that you can move on to whatever the next thing is and get that next idea. Yeah. You know, and that is a, a- to me, I mean, that whole thing that you just said right there is a topic for another day, that which resists, persists for sure. And uh, we're going to, I don't know if you have anything else you want to share. I think I've just about unloaded about as much as I can, uh, but I do want to do more. Yeah. I, well, like to do more. I think storytelling is such a great way of getting at some of these topics. And, you know, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to like the bullying epidemic. Um, you know, and I just, we can put a, a, you know, kind of like a placeholder in this for another time, but that is res- what you resist persists conversation. You know, I know for me, 
in my experiences as, you know, being bullied and um, growing into an adult who had been bullied as a child and watching other bullying experiences kind of arise in my life, resisting the confrontation of them, which I just like, I'm always like, I do not want to get into a confrontation. I don't want to fight with people like no drama, but that resistance is also keeping something in place that I need, I know for me, I need to grow beyond. Mm -hmm. And so having the self-confidence to, and I was writing about this the other day, like my first time having like an adult interaction with someone who was bullying me and how I stood up for myself. I mean, it shifted so much because I wasn't resisting the confrontation anymore. I stood up to it. Um, and in a good way, I felt like I had, you know, I had approached it with this kind of calm and, um, you know, I had to like coach myself into having this conversation, but I did it and it felt good. So it helped give me strength for moving forward. But if I had resisted it, like I would still probably be holding on to it right now, but instead it disappeared. And so, um, you know, I think that there's, that is also a resiliency tool is, you know, and a confidence building tool is to kind of take the, you know, confront things head on. And I know that's something that you talk about a lot in your podcast is this idea of like, you know, sincere apology, like really from a very sincere place or, you know, telling your bully, you know, how you feel like that really hurt that you said that to me or that, you hit me, you know, or whatever it is, right. That you didn't include me, you know, but these are scary conversations that, um, you know, especially for a young person are hard to have. They're so known as they support yeah. each other in that, right. Like, so that we can break this cycle because it's the, not helpful. <laughs> they're known as courageous conversations, and, yeah, and, which is what I've spoken about. And they are also, um, uh, something where I like kids to know, that you only have to be brave for two minutes at a time. Yes. Because, because you don't have to walk around with any bravado. You can be yourself. But when the time comes, you have to be brave for two minutes at a time. And I am a big believer that certain personalities that we have had difficulty dealing with are going to follow us our entire life if we're not careful until we do learn how to deal with them. Yeah. So it's it's because it's never the person. No. It's always the personality. Yep. And because I can I can tell you right now, they would be after me in this school that I ran for clinically disturbed kids because we used to receive them from another district to 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 um, disenroll certain kids. Uh, I said, well, why do you want me to disenroll him? Well, because his behavior is such and such, and he's having trouble, and we can't deal with him. I says, I'll disenroll him if you want me to. I said, but I got to take another kid. I says, so what, where does it stop? How many people can't you deal with? So you have to learn how to deal with this behavior because someone else is going to hit that slot again, and they're going to be confronting you, and you're going to feel uncomfortable. So until we learn how to stop it, okay, we're always going to have it. Yes. I know. (laughs) I feel like this is our work in the world, you know, is to, you know, help people understand that, you know, we have to confront these, these difficult conversations within ourselves and with others so that we can create the world we want to live in because this one's not working Mm -hmm. or it is working. It's just working in it's, you know, in it's, in its way. Right. So 
it's what I call disagreeing with the right attitude. Yes, you I know, like that. You know, I don't have to agree with you, but I can always be kind to you. Yeah. Hey, that's the biggest thing. Yeah. Um, my name is Jim Burns. You're listening to Anti-Bullying 101. And it's been me and Jen Dalton today doing this podcast. And I had an absolutely smashingly good time. I don't know about you, but I enjoyed our conversation. And, and you're going to hear more of the two of us coming down the road. That's for sure. Um, this podcast will be live sometime this week. Um, so you, you just so Jen knows that I'm going to be producing this. But Jen, it's been great working with you today. Jim, it's always a pleasure talking with you. I feel like we have very rich conversations that um, kind of expand my own understanding of what's going on in the world. So I really appreciate yeah. it. Thanks for everything yeah. you do. Well, I appreciate you too. And, and, and we're going to do this again. So with that in mind, everyone, thanks for listening to Anti-Bullying 101. And we'll see you again. Well, there you have it. That was the first episode of Jim and Jen, if you will. Um and uh, you are going to hear more of us, that's for sure. She's has a lot of information, information to share, and I'm absolutely thrilled that we had that opportunity. My name is Jim Burns. You have been listening to Anti-Bullying 101. Look for your next podcast coming up next week. It's been my pleasure. I hope you don't get too wet this weekend. There's some snow predicted here on the East Coast. So wherever you are, stay dry, stay well. Okay, and to all of you, a happy Thursday. Once again, this was Anti-Bullying 101.